when someone accidentally threw away the school play costumes, Oh, no! Replacements were shipped with FedEx. And with picture proof of delivery, everyone could focus on the perfect opening night. FedEx, where now meets next. For residential delivery only. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, the assassins of Radama II were themselves taken out of power by a coup. A new face rose to power, one that will become intimately familiar to us. Prime Minister Raini Layarifuni, who began to implement a new series of reforms to try and improve diplomatic relations between Madagascar and European merchants, in order to open up new trade routes and secure Madagascar's place as a major exporter of raw materials. Finally, the Queen of Imerina, Rasuherina, passed away after a painful battle with dysentery, leaving the increasingly symbolic throne of Madagascar to her cousin. Season 4, Episode 25, Rana Faluna II, Imerina's Christian Queen. Despite the best attempts of his resentful brother, Prime Minister Raini Layarifuni and his heiress apparent, Rana Faluna, had survived the abortive coup attempt. The chain of Malgasi succession remained unbroken. The crown, which Rana Faluna II inherited, however, was the weakest crown of Madagascar in ages. While she retained a high level of cultural and religious significance, state power and administration had increasingly moved out of the queen's area of responsibility. But even though her power was largely limited to the socio-political sphere of Medina court, Ranafaluna II still managed to make a significant impact within her limited area of authority. Compared to the lavish coronations of the past, Ranafaluna enjoyed a relatively subdued enshrinement as queen. Since most of the coup plotters against her had already been in prison, her coronation was quiet and uneventful in political regards. Raini Layarefuni and Ranafaluna were soon faced with a major conundrum facing much of Madagascar's political elite. How the rapid ascension of Christianity within Madagascar would change things. Now, we know that Christianity had been present on the island for a while now, with the first major conversions taking place under Radama I in the early 19th century. But the intense persecution of Christians under the first Ranafaluna had done a lot to undo these early conversions. However, immediately following the passing of Ranafaluna I, the Christian community began to enjoy several years without any major persecutions at the hand of the government. The last three regimes ruling Madagascar since 1861 had clashed over numerous issues, but Christianity generally wasn't one in the spotlight, as each of the regimes were fairly friendly towards Christians one way or another. In this environment of official tolerance, the Christian community began to rapidly grow. One of the major factors spurning this Christian revival was an intense sectarian competition guiding Madagascar's European missionaries. Malagasy Christianity was historically dominated by the London Missionary Society, a conglomeration of missionaries from various Protestant sects around Britain, like Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians. But following the exodus of the LMS in 1830, the growing French influence on the island associated with Jean Laborde and Napoleon de la Stelle led to the growth of Catholicism within Madagascar's underground Christian movement. It was a Catholic priest, for example, who had laid the crown upon Radama II's head during his 1861 controversial coronation. So, when the prohibition of conversions came to an end and missionaries began to flood into Madagascar, the Christian community only became further divided. 
with no mutual fear of state persecution binding them together, sectarian persecution became a rampant problem among the Christians. Reading the accounts of missionaries in Madagascar at the time, fear of an impending mass-scale purge from one side against the other was an omnipresent concern. The instability wrought by these sectarian conflicts represented a rising new challenge for the Malgasy state. In an environment of brewing sectarian conflict and a growing Malgasy congregation, Rana Faluna II and Raini Lariarifoni came to a radical conclusion. The growth of Christianity on the island, they figured, was inevitable, as any attempted persecution would not only destroy Madagascar's international standing, but would also destabilize its government. Furthermore, since the majority of formal schools in Madagascar had been run by missionaries or men trained by missionaries, the Manina court was now home to an expanding sum of Christian elites, whether these be bureaucrats or nobility, both open and closeted in their Christian affiliation. Now, Raini Lairifoni's biggest concern was that if Christianity's rise was inevitable, it would result in foreign influence. Foreigners, after all, maintained a monopoly on Christianity within the country, with almost all Christian leaders within the country being Europeans. So the religion was at risk of becoming a vehicle of foreign influence within the state. If the Malgasy monarchy was to maintain its status as the head of the Malgasy religion, it would have to become a Christian monarchy. But not the Christianity of Europeans, its own Malgasy Christianity. By 1869, Rana Faluna II, who was already a figure with public Christian sympathies, committed to her own official conversion to Christianity. That same year, the Queen and her Prime Minister traveled to the symbolically potent site of Andujalo, the site in Antanarifu where the most recent major Christian persecution had taken place. Crucially, in what was almost certainly an effort to showcase the establishment of a new movement for an independent Malgasy Christianity, there were no Europeans present at the baptism, with all rites being carried out by members of the small minority of Malgasy clergymen. In the most controversial element of the ceremony, the old objects of religious veneration, the Saint-Pierre, were gathered in the royal palace, placed on a pyre, and put to the torch. The Saint-Pierre guardians protested, but were helpless to stop the destruction. Even the greatest, most influential of the idols, Kelly Malasa, did not survive the burning. It is because of the raging bonfires of 1869 that historians cannot say with certain what most Saint-Pierre looked like. Written or reliable oral descriptions of a select few Saint-Pierre, as well as a couple of illustrations, are all we have to go on. Meanwhile, the more detailed murals within the royal palace that depicted or alluded to Saint-Pierre were similarly torn down, replaced with new Christian art and Bible verses. Religiously and politically, the Merina kingdom was entering a new era in 1869. The time of Saint-Pierre, Odier, and Hassina was over. Or, at least it was in the royal court. While the court was destroying Saint-Pierre in the city, it soon began to ban ancestor worship and Sakidia reading throughout the country. Of course, royal bans could only do so much, and these practices remained as strong as ever in the rural countryside, creating a major religious divide in terms of both geography and class within the kingdom of Imerina. To replace the sites of Saint-Pierre worship, two major churches were erected in the Rufa Fantanarifu. While neither physical church would be complete for another 12 years, the official Christianization of the royal court resulted in the creation of an independent Malgasy church. Influenced by the Protestant model of organization, the government of the new church was largely decentralized. 
But if Malagasy Christianity did have a leader, its equivalent of a pope or archbishop of Canterbury, it would be Josefa Andrianai Furefelona, the minister placed in charge of the royal chapel at Antanarifu. So, while their personal beliefs may have played a role, most historians agree that Rani Laerifoni at least had cynical motives for conversion as well. Namely, he needed the increasingly Christian bureaucratic class on his side for his upcoming reforms, and had to break the mores and ideology of traditional government and administration. See, while Rana Faluna II was radically altering Malgasi religious culture, Rani Laerifoni was undertaking his own initiative to radically alter the country's political and bureaucratic system. Despite how much had changed in the last 70 years in Emerina, the system of governmental administration within the country had stayed surprisingly similar since the reunion of the kingdom way back under Andrea Nampoini Merina. Sure, the role and power of the monarchy had changed quite a bit, but the actual day-to-day -day governing, the administration of the country's many provinces, had remained generally the same. Territories were administered through a system of regional governors, who themselves oversaw local Andriana landholders and their Menecalier estates, as well as some subordinate municipal governors in the case of the few regions of Madagascar with substantial urban populations, like Tuamasina or Morandofa. Strangely enough, these royal authorities often coexisted with local rulers who acted as vassals to the Mpanjaka Merina whether they be traditional family clans or old kingdoms that have been conquered and subsumed by the Merina state. For example, despite the fact that they have been conquered for several decades now, daily life in many parts of western Madagascar was still administered by members of the old Sakalavan noble dynasties. Of course, all of these systems were underwritten by the belief in Hasina, which lay at the heart of each relationship within the royal government. Spiritual transactions of Hasina defined the many interactions that took place between this complex web of local and royal authority. As early as the 1830s, however, cracks had been forming in this system. From its earliest days until the end of her reign, Rana Faluna I had waged a seemingly endless series of bloody campaigns. While a few of these were campaigns of foreign conquest, for the most part they were directed against disloyal governors, rebellious vassal kings, or local grassroot revolts. And remember, these wars were not small affairs. The frequent wars in Imerina's frontiers were the largest single factor in stagnating or even shrinking the population of Imerina and Madagascar during the mid-19th century. The seriousness of these wars never did let up, but during the later reign of Ranafaluna I and her son, Radama II, the ability of the Malgasi army to manage these threats was beginning to decline. By the time Raini Laerifuni took over, it wasn't even necessarily clear what the exact extent of his nation's sovereignty even was. Sure, you could identify with some confidence that pretty much every major city on the island was under secure Merina control, as was pretty much anywhere connected to Antanarifu by road. This is the main reason why foreigners, who were really only concerned with what was happening in these major cities, often recognized all of Madagascar as under Merina control. But the reality was much more complex than that. Now, we'll hear more about that after a quick word from this episode's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Klaviyo, the platform that powers smarter digital relationships. With Klaviyo, you can activate all your customer data in real time, connect seamlessly with your customers across all channels, guide your marketing strategy with AI-powered insights, recommendations, and automated assistance, deliver experiences that feel individually designed at scale, and grow your business faster. 
Power smarter digital relationships with Clavio. Learn more at Clavio.com slash Spotify. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash Spotify. Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Once you get into the areas between these cities and roads, things became pretty sketchy in terms of who actually controlled what. Local noblemen in the rural provinces had questionable loyalty to the crown and enormous levels of autonomy. In small towns located away from the roads, it would be easy to forget that you technically lived under the suzerainty of a larger Malgasy kingdom, as it really felt like your entire daily life was controlled by the hierarchy of your local ruler. And this was even true in places that were not actively disloyal. So imagine how loose Merina control was in places where Merina power was actively repudiated. The best example of this, of course, were the so-called slave republics. Independent communities of escaped enslaved workers, Fanampuana deserters, fugitive criminals, or anyone else who had a good reason to seek to avoid the Merina lawmen. While the government continued to claim complete and uncontested sovereignty over the totality of Madagascar, anyone who actually traveled into these rural regions could expose this fantasy for what it was. And that's not even to mention the dozens of non-Merina monarchs, technically under Merina vassalage, who still acted like de facto independent authorities, raising taxes, lowering taxes, fostering deals with foreign powers, conscripting personal armies, and all of this while ignoring their supposed vassal status and obligations to the Merina crown. To Raini Lairifuni, much of the governmental failure in governing rural provinces could be placed squarely at the feet of weak, incompetent, and disloyal administrators who had let it happen. And these administrators were perhaps the greatest roadblock to his agenda. Of course, the Prime Minister was planning to improve Madagascar's economy primarily through resource extraction, something which could not work if he did not possess control of the provinces where these resources were abundant. His solution to crush the problem of inconsistent Merina authority would be to breed and deploy a new class of administrators to fully bring the provinces of Imerina, and more importantly, their people, wealth, and natural resources under his thumb. This new cast of administrators came almost entirely from a rank of soldiers in the military, known as Deka. The term Deka originated from a Malagasyization of the French term aide-de-camp, referring to mid-level army officers, men who may act as a general's assistant or lead a squad of troops. Under Raini Lairifuni, many former or current Deka were offered new positions as royal provincial bureaucrats. Their job was to go into the provinces and make sure that Merina rule was being properly observed, that local people were signing up for Fanampuana, and that taxes to royal government were being paid on time and in full. Keep in mind that Raini Lairifuni was not only Madagascar's head of government, but that he also retained his position of commander-in-chief. He couldn't trust vassal kings or governors to properly govern their territories, but he could trust his loyal officers, people who he had in many cases overseen and trained from their very induction into the armed forces. Above the new Deca provincial administrators, some legal authority was also provided to regional judges, who would manage and advise provincial officials, 
while also providing guidance and aid in their decision-making. Finally, in order to ensure that his country would have a new, eager generation of future administrators, Raini Lairifuni ordered the chartering of Madagascar's first fully native school. Now, I say fully native because it was the first government-sanctioned school in Malagasy history, which featured no European missionaries, industrialists, or merchants within its administration, though there were still quite a few in the staff acting as teachers. The school's mission, as laid out in its charter, was to train future generations to become provincial administrators, people who would lead Madagascar into a bright new future of competent and centralized government. Over time, this first school would develop into many more, and eventually morph into Madagascar's first true public school system, with many more schools being erected throughout the country and attendance first being made mandatory in 1881. This new method of administering provinces had a mixed effect. The new provincial bureaucrats were generally quite effective and capable at governing, and the new pair of eyes constantly observing local rulers did succeed in breaking their autonomy and ensuring a degree of loyalty. The state also did become more centralized as Raini Lairifuni had hoped, and the government authority became more visible in the provinces. While many parts of the island, especially in the far west and south, as well as numerous slave republics in the interior, remained essentially free of Marina rule, the idea of a truly united Malgasy kingdom which for so long had been simply a fiction was now close to becoming a reality for the first time in decades. On the other hand, while the provincial bureaucrats were certainly loyal and capable, they were also notoriously corrupt. Provincial bureaucrats had a free hand to skim tax payments and keep a little for themselves, or divert proportions of local Falampuana for personal projects against centralized wishes. This system was supposed to be counteracted by, of course, the regional judges, who would act as oversight and provide accountability to these provincial bureaucrats. In practice, however, much like the bureaucrats themselves, they were usually plucked from the officers' rank of the military. It wasn't uncommon for regional judges to be personal friends with provincial bureaucrats and to let them get away with corruption allegations. The commonness of corruption within provincial administrations hurt the government's revenue. But in an ironic twist, these men were not so much betraying Raini Lairifuni as they were imitating him. See, the prime minister himself could also be accurately described as capable, loyal, and notoriously corrupt. He too had used government funds to amass a fortune worth millions of piastres. He too had used Falampuana labor to construct his own personal residence that rivaled the royal palace even in its splendor. Andiafia Fatra Palace, as his new home was called, was a gorgeous three-story home featuring iron roofs and a stone facade. In fact, the new prime ministerial palace arguably surpassed the royal palace in terms of its splendor, beauty, and sophistication. Soon after its completion, Rana Faluna II soon felt that her own palace was deficient in comparison and warranted upgrades. She paid a hefty sum to replace the wooden facade of the Manjakamiadana with its own stone facade, which it still retains to this day. In addition to his sometimes questionable government spending on personal uses, the Prime Minister was also invested in numerous off-island opportunities. Financially, Raini Lairifuni was a globetrotter, owning land and investments in British India, as well as a personal Italian bank account. Now, at least initially, the spendthrift's habit of Madagascar's political elite and corruption of regional administrators was a minor problem at worst. After all, as this new system was being set up, 
Madagascar was succeeding economically. Rainilayarifuni's plan to flood the country with foreign investment was starting to yield dividends, and the country experienced a decade-long economic boom. Even despite a brief lull in the 1860s due to the opening of the Suez Canal, the ever-increasing demand for tropical wood and cattle skins, as well as the growing familiarity abroad with Madagascar's newfound friendliness to foreign trade, allowed Madagascar's economy to finally reverse course and rapidly grow. By 1873, exports finally caught up and even surpassed the 1869 level, reversing the dip caused by the creation of the Suez Canal. Throughout the 1870s, Madagascar also maintained a slightly favorable trade balance, exporting great sums of timber and skins while replacing the lost goods created by Madagascar's declining industry through imported materials. Fueled by the growing industry of resource extraction, Madagascar ran a budgetary surplus throughout this period as well, despite the aforementioned problems. Raini Lairifoni does deserve real credit for this success. For the first time in decades, Madagascar was truly progressing economically and experiencing prosperity. But this economic golden age could not last forever, and in 1876, the country's good fortune ran out. Now, before we talk about what happened next, we first need to establish how an important sector of the Merina economy worked. Namely, throughout the show we've been talking a lot about the use of coinage, but Madagascar hasn't actually possessed an active mint since even before the days of Andrea Nampuini Merina. So, if people in Madagascar are using coins for transactions, where are they coming from? The answer, of course, is foreign merchants. Now, the most trusted international currency throughout the Indian Ocean in this period was the franc. And despite Rani Lairifuni's attempts to diversify Madagascar's trade at the French's expense, the franc nonetheless remained dominant in Madagascar throughout this time period. The movement of francs in Madagascar also generally traveled quite a bit within Madagascar, following an east-to-west path. European and American merchants brought large sums of francs with them, which they exchanged for goods in ports like Tuamasina. These coins were then traded between Malgasy merchants for goods and services within the country, before finally making their way to the west coast, where they usually ended up in the hands of European, Arab, or Swahili merchants on the western coast. Now, for decades, the careful balance of foreign coinage entering and leaving Madagascar allowed the francs' value on the island to remain stable. Francs were entering to a Messina at roughly the same rate that they were leaving from the west coast, so the currency's value remained fairly stagnant. But while it hadn't happened yet, the reliance on foreign currency also meant that any minor disruption to Madagascar's internal trade also had the potential to cripplingly disrupt the amount of currency available on the island. And this exact disaster struck in December of 1876 when a small epidemic of smallpox broke out in major port cities across eastern Madagascar. This epidemic caused a brief but significant economic slowdown on the east coast. The largely unaffected west coast, however, continued business as usual. Coins continued leaving Madagascar in the hands of Swahili and Arab merchants at the same rate as always, while the economic slowdown in the east meant no new coins were entering. The result was a severe currency crisis. At first, this resulted in deflation, in which the currency ballooned to ever-growing values, giving European merchants incredibly advantageous leverage in trade negotiations. But as the supply of coins grew even shorter and even shorter, Malagasy markets soon devolved into unorganized bartering, 
slowing down transactions at marketplaces, and beginning a decline into a major recession. For his part, Rainirai Rifuni knew exactly what was going wrong and tried to right the ship. He contacted merchants from the British colony in India and imported the British colonial currency there, rupees, to alleviate the currency shortage in Madagascar. Malagasy merchants, though, proved unhelpful and refused to accept the new currency. After all, francs had been a trustworthy and stable source of transactions for decades. Making the adjustment to this unfamiliar and largely unknown new currency was something that was going to take some time. For most merchants in Madagascar, the smarter choice was to simply rely on bartering in the meantime, instead of taking the risk of trusting that this random unknown currency was worth giving up precious goods for. And, as if this wasn't bad enough, the currency crisis of 1876 was soon followed by a new series of problems. Previously dormant diplomatic tensions between France and Madagascar were beginning to reheat, and within a few years, they would reach a boiling point. Join us in our next episode as we chart the spiraling series of cascading events that lead into the 1883 Franco-Hufa War. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, Bibi Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Mokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyuno Lorunti Mine, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rasan Firgiani, Ni T, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.